God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Have you ever heard those words before? God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That exact phrasing, done that way, is the beginning of the four spiritual laws. Anyone, ever, anyone know what I'm talking about, the four spiritual laws? It's, a, it's, a, it's a, an evangelism tool. It's a way of consolidating, organizing, synthesizing um, the, the message of the gospel, the plan of salvation into four memorable, easily repeatable laws, spiritual laws. And as you walk someone through those laws, what you're doing is helping them to understand their, their, their need for salvation, uh, God's desire to have a relationship with them, and how uh, through Jesus Christ, um, they can have their sins um, forgiven, they can have life in him, and all of the hope and restoration that comes in a relationship with Christ. And it's really this first law that, that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life is, is kind of a combination of two uh, Bible verses. One we actually read earlier this morning, John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It's focusing on the love of God that drives his initiation to send the son. And then another verse in Jeremiah 29, 11. This is one of those coffee mug verses that gets printed uh, uh, on, uh, on coffee mugs in Christian stores. And it says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And so when you combine the sentiment of those two verses, it's God loves you and God has a wonderful plan for your life. Now that's great and it's actually true. But sometimes our day-to-day -day experiences cast a shadow of doubt on God's so-called wonderful plan for our lives. We're willing to believe the first assumption that God loves me, but then we're a little dubious about that next phrase. God has a wonderful plan for our life. Think about it. As you live life, there's sickness, there's pain, broken relationships, abuse, shattered dreams... We often face temptation, there's sin, there's death, and the list goes on. And so at some point, it's a fair thing if you've ever wondered, ever doubted, ever asked, God, do you really have a wonderful plan for my life? And if you do, then why all the suffering? Why does it have to be so difficult? It seems like even when I'm trying my hardest and actually Following the, the straight and the narrow, it seems like almost when I'm on those roads that I face hardship after hardship after hardship. And we realize that suffering really is that great equalizer in life. If you look around this room, it's a pretty diverse room. You can't outsmart suffering. No matter how smart you are, I mean, some people in their foolishness stumble into some more than others. But no matter how smart you are, you're going to face suffering. A PhD doesn't eliminate you from suffering. You can't buy your way out of it. Sure, you might be able to shield yourself from some of it. But ultimately, you can't buy your way out of suffering. Eventually, suffering becomes a part of everyone's life. The question is not if, but when you will find yourself in one of those painful pits of life. So this morning, we're continuing in our sermon series through the book of Genesis. And this last, uh, these, this last section, it, 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 we're looking at really the, the life of Joseph 
and his brothers. And it's one cohesive story. And really, Kevin and I were talking about this. Every chapter is about suffering. So if it seems like we're on repeat, it's like a little mini-series on suffering. And what's interesting about it is that each chapter views suffering from a, from a slightly different angle. And so we're going to be able to, to really unpack suffering over the next several weeks. And today in Genesis 39, the story picks back up with Joseph. And as soon as Joseph is taken out of one pit, he finds himself in another. And like us, Joseph is wondering, God, I know you love me, but where's this wonderful plan that you have for my life? So as we walk through this chapter this morning, we want to see three things that will help us in the midst of suffering. So if you're taking notes, here's our outline. First, we're going to see God's presence in our suffering. Though Joseph is in the pit, God has not abandoned him. And the good news is he will not abandon you either. God is near to the brokenhearted. Second point, we'll see God's purpose for our suffering. Though suffering is never pleasant, it's not meaningless and it's not purposeless. God has a purpose for our suffering. And our third point we'll see is God's providence in our suffering. Not only does God have a purpose for our suffering, God's providence ensures that suffering is used to accomplish his plans and his purposes. God is sovereign over our suffering. And so we'll see God's presence, God's purpose, and his providence in our suffering. So let's begin in verse 1 to see God's presence in our suffering. Here again the word of the Lord. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. So as we open up Genesis 39, Moses reminds us of Joseph's situation. It's really like a recap. If you, you, know, you watch shows on Netflix, it'll say like previously on. See, Moses took a, uh, there was the, the, the Genesis 38 was like an episode into the life of one of his brothers. And so it put pause on Joseph's story. Now as he returns back, he says, hey, just so you remember, Joseph was sold in Egypt. He was sold into slavery. In fact, uh, Psalm 105, we actually get a few more details on how all that went down. Psalm 105 verse 16 says, when he, this is God, summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he, God, had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters, and his neck was put in a collar of iron. Psalm 105, if you read the whole psalm, is like a quick hit recap of the history of Israel. You, in fact, you, in one chapter, you can kind of get the story of Israel. And in verses 16 to 18, we see that this, this being sold into slavery was a brutal, violent affair. It wasn't this, it wasn't, it wasn't calm. It wasn't like, hey, Joseph, why don't you just go with these guys? And Joseph was like, sounds good to me. No, he was beaten, he was hurt, he was bound, his, his ankles were shackled, and there was an, a collar of iron put around him. This is not a docile scene. It's barbaric. It's inhumane. And as he's sold into slavery, his dignity as a human is being stripped away as his ankles are shackled and his neck is, is, uh, is, is bound. And he's sold like livestock into slavery, forcibly taken away from his homeland. And it's easy for us 
many thousands of years later. It's easy for us because we know how his story ends to kind of um, lessen the severity of it. But this is a brutal scene. And we need to enter into that scene to feel the weight of his descent. He has gone from being the favored son of the favored wife of, of, of his father, overseer of his brothers. He is in line to be the heir apparent of his father's massive uh, estate. He's got power, he's got privilege, he's got possessions. And then he's sold for profit into slavery, bound and shackled with a collar around his neck. And yet we see it was the Lord who sent him. Do you hear that in Psalm 105? That God sent a man ahead of this famine. He sent him ahead of the coming famine to preserve his people. And so we see two things happening simultaneously. And I want to encourage you. I want to put this in your, uh, your category of thought as you read the Bible. That often there are two things happening simultaneously. On the one hand, you see this human will, this human initiative. Joseph's brothers have committed a great sin of injustice against their brother. And yet, simultaneously, God is moving in a sovereign way, orchestrating the details of history to establish his purposes. They're not mutually exclusive, they're mutually inclusive, happening side by side together. And if you're wondering, but how does that work out? I don't know. I just know that it does. That's what the Bible tells us. God is working, orchestrating all of this to fulfill his promises. Now Joseph, he doesn't have all this hindsight like we have. We're reading this story thousands of years removed. We know the end of the story. But Joseph doesn't know all of that. All he knows is the circumstances of the things that are happening around him. But the Bible tells us he does have something else. Look at me at verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph. And he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him. And that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. Five times in these verses, we read of the presence and the blessing of the Lord. Moses doesn't want you to miss that. The Lord was with Joseph. His master, this, this pagan Egyptian, saw that the Lord was with him. And the Lord caused all that he had to be blessed. The Lord blessed uh, the Egyptian's house for his sake. And the blessing was on all that he had. Do you see that? Five times it reminds us over and over and over that though Joseph is in the pit. Though Joseph is facing suffering. The Lord is with Joseph. He's with him. Later in the story when Joseph is falsely accused. And he's thrown into prison. The very next thing we'll see is the Lord was with Joseph. No matter the pit of despair, no matter the suffering, the Lord was with him. See, Joseph's situation, his circumstances keep changing. 
As we keep reading in the life, you know, it's, it's rise and fall, rise and fall, exaltation, humiliation, up and down, situations, circumstances change. But what is the constant in Joseph's life? The Lord was with him. Things go from good to bad, slightly better, even worse. He rises and falls, and yet the constant in the chaos of his life is the Lord was with Joseph. God's presence is with him no matter the circumstances. And I think Moses is trying to show us something. First of all, remember the very first readers. It's important to remember that. That's a good how to study the Bible tool to know who was this originally written to. Now this is written to the people of Israel as they're standing on the banks about to enter into the promised land. And what is before them? They're going to enter into the promised land, but there, 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 there are people who occupy that land. And they're going to have to uh, 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 conquer these lands in order to receive this promise. And it could be very easy for them to get scared, to, to not think that the Lord is with them in their endeavors. These are also people who have been delivered out of bondage of slavery in Egypt. So anytime these first readers hear the word Egypt, that's a code word for them. And in one word, a flood of emotions, a flood of memories, a flood of history can come into their life. It's, it, for, for them, it's code for the worst possible situation anyone could experience. And we have codes like this too. I can say the word 9-11 and automatically you remember where you were, what was happening, the aftermath, right? One word can capture a lifetime of memories. Emotions, feelings, situations. That's what Egypt does for them. So every, when, when, when Moses writes, and he was sold by the Ishmaelites into Egypt, it's like, whoa, that is death. That is the worst place anybody would ever want to go. It's hell on earth. And Moses is trying to teach the Israelites. And remember, Paul says, this is written for our instruction too, that there's... That, that, that you may go down into Egypt, and yet there's something worse than being in Egypt. There's something worse than being the victim of injustice. Doesn't mean it's not terrible, but Moses is trying to say there is actually something worse than being the victim of injustice. And you might ask, well, what's worse than being enslaved in Egypt? What's worse than being betrayed by your brothers? What's worse than being the victim of tragic injustice? What is worse than being falsely accused and thrown into prison, which is about to happen? What could possibly be worse than all of that? And it's being without God and without hope in the world. There's a situation far worse than Joseph's. This is actually Paul's point in the book of Ephesians when he describes a person who is uh, apart from Christ, who, who, who doesn't uh, have a relationship with him. Paul says, remember Ephesians 2.12, that you were at that time before Christ, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, don't miss this, having no hope and without God in the world. That is the worst possible place you can be without God and without hope in the world see your present situations and circumstances maybe you're facing some tragic suffering right now it doesn't mean it's not terrible it doesn't mean it's not painful but what Moses wants to tell us is there's actually a pit below that pit a pit of which you do not want to be so let's put all this together Joseph's present circumstances are 
terrible. He's in the land of death. He's a slave. But his situation, his circumstances aren't ultimate. They aren't final. There's a pit that you never want to be in. There's a place that you never want to go. And that's the pit of being without God and without hope in the world. And Moses Moses wants us to see that it is actually better to be betrayed by your brothers, to be sold as a slave into Egypt, and yet to know God and have his presence. See, he's contrasted here with Potiphar. Think about Potiphar. He has incomparable finger, uh, power at his fingertips. He is, he's like the head of the army of the most powerful empire known to man. Think about it. This guy can do whatever he wants. And yet he's without God and without hope in the world. And at surface level, we would think, who in this story has it worse? We would say Joseph. Joseph's a slave. His life isn't his own. He's about to be falsely accused. He can be thrown into another pit. He's already been thrown into a pit. He's been betrayed. He has all of these things that he could list out and say, my life is worse than yours. And Moses wants to say, no, no, no. He's not the one who's worse off in this chapter. It's Potiphar. He is without God and without hope in the world. Now, in order to see this, you have to turn your thinking upside down. But that's actually what the gospel does is it turns our thinking upside down. In fact, in the book of Acts, when Paul's out there preaching, he's accused of, hey, those are those guys preaching who are turning the world upside down. See, when you see that the presence of God is everything, that if you have Christ and nothing else, you actually have everything. When you see that the presence of God is everything, you can say, I may suffer in Egypt, But as long as God is with me, I have hope. You might be treated unfairly. You might be the victim of injustice. But as long as God is with you, you have hope. That's the point of Isaiah 43, 1 through 2. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by name, and you are mine. Listen, don't miss this. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. This is the theology of suffering in the Bible. It's not that the waters and flames don't come. Look at me. If you've ever been told... If you will just put your faith and trust in Christ, then everything will work out for you. Look at me. That was a lie. And I'm so terribly sorry that somebody lied to you like that. They've actually probably never read the Bible. Because page after page after page, you see the people of God, those in relationship with him, going through terrible and difficult situations. And what God offers is not that they will never come, but when you go through them, I will be with you. When they come, they will not ultimately overwhelm you or ultimately consume you because the Lord will be with you. I am sure that Joseph is just like you and me. When he was going through these terrible situations, When he was thrown into the pit, 
when he was taken out and sold, when he was falsely accused, when he spent dark and lonely days, he thought, Lord, where are you? Why is this happening to me? I guarantee you he cried out for relief. And I'm sure there were days when all he wanted was just to go home. I'm sure there are days when he doubted the promises and presence of God. But ultimately, Joseph was able to endure, not because of his circumstances, not because they changed, but because the Lord was with him. And friends, this is the same promise that is given to us. It's not that Joseph gets some elite promise of God and we're left with scraps. So at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul tells us that, the, that God, the Father, is the Father of all mercies. And he is the God of all comfort who will comfort us in our affliction. He also tells us that God the Son, Jesus Christ, remember in the book of Matthew, right before Jesus leaves, he says, Behold, I am with you even to the ends of the age. The Holy Spirit was given for the very reason to indwell us and to be with us. That's why Paul can say with confidence in Romans 8 that we are more than conquerors and that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. All of that put together is trying to tell us, friends, you do not walk this journey alone. The Lord will be with you. You will not suffer in Egypt alone. Whatever your Egypt is, whatever you are facing right now that feels like death, the Lord is with you. And God's providence and his wisdom, we will all suffer times that feel like Egypt, but we will not suffer alone. See, God loves you, and he does have a wonderful plan for your life, but it's not a plan absent of suffering. It's not a plan that's absent of suffering, but look at me. It is a plan that is full of his presence. It's not a plan that's absent of him. God is present with us in our suffering. Now let's keep moving to see our second point this morning. So that not only is God with us and present, but he's also purposeful. God has a purpose for our suffering. Look at verse 6. So Potiphar left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now, if you remember, the Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man. And the Bible tells us that the Lord caused that to happen. Joseph's uh, success and prosperity came because of the Lord. Now, certainly Joseph was talented. He was well organized. He was a leader. But Moses makes this clear. It's not his own personal giftedness that made him successful. It was the Lord who brought about this blessing and prosperity in Potiphar's house. And then we read, Now Joseph was, a hand, was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me and my servant, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he's put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. So apparently the Bible tells us Joseph was a looker. He was attractive, took after his great-grandmother Sarah and his mother Rachel. And Potiphar's wife takes notice. 
Now, this is a woman who is used to getting what she wants. After all, her husband is very powerful. He's the captain of the guard for Pharaoh. He's like the head of the army in Egypt. And with that power, with that position, Potiphar's wife is used to getting what she wants. And right now, what she wants is Joseph. And she doesn't ask him, like, Joseph, what do you think about this? She says, lie with me. This is not an invitation. It's not a request. It's a demand. And Joseph, as a slave, should follow that command. Now remember, despite his, we we can quickly think, well, Joseph's elevated in the house, right? He's like second in command. Don't forget, he's still a slave. Though he may be in charge of Potiphar's house, he's still a slave. She is still his master, but Joseph refuses. And here's the logic of his refusal. See, first on a human level, he realizes, look, to do this would, would, would not work out well for me with Potiphar. This guy has put a lot of trust in me. My situation and circumstances have gotten a lot better than they were. I could be a lower level slave, but I, I've been elevated. And I'm sure he, he experienced some benefits from being elevated up into um, Potiphar's house. And so he just recognizes from the onset, hey, this is a bad move. This is a bad move. He's got a good thing going on here. And Potiphar has given him access to everything in his house except his wife. And he knows to do so would be a bad move. But on another level, a deeper level, what Joseph says to do this would to betray the Lord. It would be a great wickedness. It's not just that it it could turn out bad. It's that it would be sinful. And he calls it sin. And he recognizes that ultimately to do so would be to sin against God. See, even when we sin against one another, we are also sinning against the Lord. And Joseph knows that the Lord is with him. And that nearness means more to him than fleeting pleasures. That nearness means more to him than the consequences of saying no. Because make no mistake about it. Joseph's not a stupid guy. He knows if he says no, there are consequences that come. He's not naive. He knows there could be dire consequences for rejecting the clear command of Potiphar's wife. But he remains remains steadfast in the midst of great temptation. So what are the temptations that are facing Joseph here? Well, first, there's the first temptation, the obvious one, of temptation for pleasure. He's a slave. And here's an opportunity for delight. Secondly, there's the temptation for position and power. See, he could say yes, and he could have the favor of Potiphar's wife. Not only would he have the favor of Potiphar, but he could try to play both sides and have the favor of his wife. And then there's the temptation for preservation. See, if he doesn't say yes, he opens himself up for retribution and retaliation From Potiphar's wife. And yet the Bible says day after day. This wasn't a one time thing. Day after day he refused her. And he even started to make no effort to be around her. He was trying to be strategic and not be in the same place with her. See Joseph is a picture of the principle that we find in 2 Timothy 2.22. When Paul's writing to his young protege, his young pastor Timothy. He says flee youthful passions. And pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Joseph's not perfect. The end goal of this passage isn't, Joseph's our hero, be like Joseph. That said, the morality, 
the decisions that Joseph exhibits here, they're not only commendable, they're given to us as an example to follow. There's wisdom here for us. To call sin a sin and to make every effort to pursue righteousness. Despite his desire for pleasure, despite his need for position and power, despite his legitimate sense of self-preservation, Joseph doesn't play games with sin. He doesn't. He calls a spade a spade. And it's our job as we come to these passages, not merely view it as a documentary. It's not merely given to us as a history lesson. We're meant to ask, God, why is this here? Why did you tell us about this? What do we need to believe? What do we need to do? And I think one of the reasons that this passage is here is to give us a picture of the biblical principle of how temptation is put into our pathways in order to change and to shape us. See, not only is God with us in the midst of suffering and trials to comfort us and to be near us, he also uses them to shape us. That's why trials and temptations are not pointless but purposeful. How would our experience of suffering change if we started to ask, Lord, it's not comfortable, it's not easy, but what are you trying to teach me? What are you trying to do in my life? See, nothing in our life is random or left to chance. Every situation, every circumstance is providential and purposeful. Now you might be thinking, well, but why does God put these kind of temptations in his pathway at all? Is God tempting him to sin? I mean, he is sovereign. He could remove this whole situation. And the answer, if we're reading the Bible well, is no. James chapter 1 tells us, Let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So God does not tempt anyone toward evil. But at the same time, his plan for our life does include many tests and many temptations that he does allow to remain. I think Pastor John Piper is really helpful here. He says, in fact, every step we take is a step into the presence of temptation. There is no moment of your life that it is not a moment of temptation. A moment where unbelief and disobedience is not a possibility. That's what life is. Endless choices between belief and unbelief. Obedience and disobedience. And then here's the prayer. But oh mighty God, forbid that I would yield. Hold me back from stepping inside the temptation. Every moment, friends is a moment of temptation. It's not like you have times in your life where there are no temptations at all, and then you step into this moment of temptation. Every step you take is a moment where you're going to choose to live in accordance with faith, in accordance with the scriptures, obeying the will and commands of God, or to, not, to disobey, to walk away, to have a life of marked by unbelief. Every moment is a moment. That can either be characterized and marked by belief or disbelief, obedience or disobedience. And as we come to these uh, everyday moments of temptation, we're given a promise as believers. We're given grace to overcome it. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says this. No temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with that temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So behind the scenes, whether you realize it or not, 
No matter the, 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 what, no matter the temptation, the Lord has promised it will not be a temptation beyond your ability to overcome. So whatever temptations this week that you've succumbed to, whatever ones you've given into, I promise you, the Bible promises you, it wasn't a temptation that you couldn't have said no to. It was one that God, uh, in his wisdom and providence, knows you could have overcome. You have, in Christ, every ability to say no. And, along with that, there will be a way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. And in case you're wondering, okay, that's great, but I already gave in, so what do I do now? The good news of the gospel is that God is gracious, he's merciful, he's slow to anger, and he's abounding in steadfast love. And he promises us that his grace is sufficient for you and me. So even that temptation that you gave into today, that sin was already paid for on the cross. That's why we can walk into every moment of temptation with confidence. Lord, you've not put this in my path as a way to overcome and overwhelm me. I can say no. And you know, in the back of your mind, if you don't, there's grace, yes. But you have the power of Christ to say no. So as we look and we face temptation, we need to see the character of God as a good father who's not going to put you in situations beyond your ability to overcome. And we need to come with the eyes of faith that trust that nothing about our life is random or pointless. So you must be facing whatever you're facing for a reason. Do you remember in the book of James when he instructs believers to see trials through the eyes of faith? What does he say? He says, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What is James telling us? The testing of our faith is purposeful. It does something. It produces things in our life and our character that could not be produced otherwise. Like steadfastness. And as we grow in steadfastness, our faith becomes more and more complete. In fact, this is a principle that you already know. It's something you experience every single day. Here's a few examples. You know how you get better and develop in mathematics? Not just by doing math like simple equations. You think you're going to grow in math by doing 1 plus 1 equals 2 every day? No. If you want to grow in mathematics, you have to progressively do what? Harder and harder and more difficult math. I'm not saying it's easy or fun. I'm just saying that's how you grow in math. How do you develop as a reader? Just by doing those, those, those little children's reader books that say number one on them. Like here's your first reader. If you only read those books throughout your life, you will not grow and develop as a reader. But we know this. You have to read progressively more and more difficult books. How do you develop your skills as a woodworker? I'm a woodworker. I love uh, uh, building things. If I only built simple boxes and simple joinery, I would never grow as a woodworker. What do you have to do? You have to uh, try more and progressively difficult joints and different kinds of cuts so that you grow. You develop these skills. You, you take on projects on things that you've never done before, that are harder and more difficult, where you're going to face problems so that you can overcome them. That's how you grow. And we see this everywhere, from your projects at work to growing as parents and, and growing in marriage and relationships. All of it 
you grow by coming into contact with progressively harder and more difficult circumstances. So why would we think that our lives, the character development, is any different? So you can fill in the blank with almost any skill, any sport, any role. You grow and develop and mature by coming into contact with trials and difficulties. But for some reason, when it comes to our day-to-day lives and the, the, the growth of our faith, we think, no, I'll grow in my faith through comfort and ease. Now, it's okay to go, I wish it were like that, but that's not how it works. Comfort and ease do not bring about maturity. Comfort and ease is not what God means when he says he loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Wherever that lie crept in, And said to us, a wonderful life means comfort and ease. However that got in there, this passage is given to us to instruct us to go, well, that's a lie. That's not how God works. To reject that lie and go, okay, so what is true? Here's what's true. God has a purpose for our suffering, and it's to develop and mature our character. So when God says he loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life, that wonderful plan includes your growth and maturity and that means oftentimes you will have to go through difficulty to get there. So not only is God with us, but God uses our suffering to change us. Your situations, your circumstances are used by God. They're not pointless, they're purposeful. Now let's wrap up here and see our third point, God's providence and our suffering. Verse 11, but one day when he, Joseph, went into the house to do his work, none of the men of the house were there. She caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, see, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us came in to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her, uh, laid up her garment by her until his master came home. And she said to him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant who you brought among us came in to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted my voice, he cried and left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. So we see the story develop. Joseph continues to refuse Potiphar's wife day after day, but one day the circumstances are stacked against him. No one's in the house. Potiphar's wife corners him. She grabs him by his garment, and that garment likely would have been some kind of cloak that would have identified his position um, in Potiphar's house. But Joseph refuses to give in, and he kind of does a ninja maneuver, gets out of the garment, and, and runs out, and she's left standing there with his cloak. And for the second time in his short life, his garment is used as evidence to spin a lie. Verse 19, as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, he says, this is the way your servant treats me. And his anger was kindled. Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. So Potiphar hears of this supposed betrayal, and he has to act. Now, I think if we're reading between the lines, there's, there's probably good evidence to believe that Potiphar doesn't really believe his wife's story. See, if he really believed that Joseph had tried to force himself on his wife, he could have and would have had Joseph executed. 
that, that, that's, that wouldn't have been um, unjust. It's probably the standard justice of the day. But instead, he actually spares Joseph's life, and he puts him into the uh, prison where the king's prisoners were confined. And, 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 and Moses tells us this because it's a significant detail that's going to play um, in, in the coming chapters. Verse 21. The Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. And whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. Whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Now if you're thinking that sounds like the beginning of the chapter, and you're right. It's almost identical to the beginning of chapter 39. The Lord was with Joseph, and he caused all that he did to, to succeed. Now that word succeed, we've already seen it earlier in the chapter. It's a significant Hebrew word. This is a word that shows up over and over throughout the Old Testament. We see it in Deuteronomy 28, where Moses is describing blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. And he says, if you obey, you will prosper. You will succeed. If you don't obey, you will not succeed. You will not prosper. We see this in Joshua 1.8. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do, to, uh, do according to all that was written in it. Then you will make your way prosperous. That's the word there. And then you will have good success. It's used in Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, or sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. And its leaf does not wither. Here it is. And all that he does, he prospers. He succeeds. See, it's used over and over again. I just gave you a few examples. It's used over and over again about the success and prosperity that comes to those who've entrusted themselves to the Lord and who meditate on his word. Now, why did I tell you all of that? Think about Joseph's success. It's the kind of prosperity that the Bible does endorse, that the Bible does talk about. Not the prosperity gospel that you might see on TV. He's saying the kind of success that the Bible teaches, you can be enslaved, you can be in the very midst of suffering, and yet if the Lord is with you and you are entrusting yourself to him, you can still be successful. You might be financially unstable. You could be diagnosed with cancer. You could be suffering trials of various kinds. And yet, if you've entrusted yourself to the Lord and he is with you, the Bible describes that as successful, as prospering. Again, this is an upside down kind of way. If you're embracing his word, delighting in his presence, you are prospering. Now think about Joseph, the time he's living. It's before this has all been written down. I mean, we're in the very first book of the Bible, Genesis, but Genesis was written by Moses, and so there's no Bible in Joseph's day. But what does Joseph have? Joseph knows the promises of God. Think about it. They've been passed down from generation to generation. Joseph knows his past. He, he knows his history. He knows where he comes from. You know who his great-grandfather is? Abraham. You know who his grandfather is? Isaac. You know who his father is? Jacob. Abraham. Isaac. Jacob. 
these flawed men, but who were given these great promises from God. And he knows that the promises given to Abraham took many years to come to fulfillment. He knows that the promises given to his father Isaac, uh, uh, grandfather, took many years to come to fulfillment. And he knows that the promises given to Jacob took many years to come to fulfillment. And he knows that the gap between promise and fulfillment, that each one of them suffered. He knows that. And so he has come to this place to realize suffering is not evidence that God has abandoned you. Suffering is not evidence of the faithlessness of God. In fact, suffering must be part of the plan of God. And as he thinks about the fact that the fathers before him have suffered, he's come to this place to realize then why should my life be any different? He knows the promises given to his family. He knows that God has given him these, these dreams. Remember those dreams at the beginning of chapter 37 that God would one day exalt him and that his, that his family would bow down to him? He knows that one day he will rise again. He knows that one day God has promised to lift him up. And so in the midst of suffering, what does he do? He clings to the promises of God despite what his circumstances may suggest. And we are in the same place as Joseph. We've got all of these great promises to us secured by the death and resurrection of Jesus. And we know that Jesus, the author of our faith, he himself suffered. And so we, we come to this place as believers to recognize, so that must mean we too will suffer. But what do we do? We cling to the promises of God that there is coming a time when we too will rise again. Ian Duguid says it like this. When we explore what God is up to in our lives, we discover that his good plan is not a plan for our ease and comfort, but rather a plan for our death and resurrection. Dying to sin to our old self and rising to a whole new life in him. He loves you and me too much to leave us unchanged. Friends, don't look at your present circumstances and therefore draw long-term conclusions about who God is and what he's doing. Get that into your soul. Do not look at your present circumstances and draw long-term conclusions about who God is and what he is doing in your life. Think about Joseph. He's back in the pit. He was in the pit in Dothan when he was sold into slavery. And then it looked like things were looking up for him, right? But then he's treated unjustly, falsely accused, and he's thrown back into prison. And guess what? He's right where God wants him to be. You remember Psalm 105? What did God say? That he sent a man ahead of this coming famine in order to preserve his people. And because he's in the king's prison, he's one step closer to Pharaoh. All of this has been moving to get him so that he can get next to Pharaoh and tell him his dreams that are coming. Now we know that. We can see that. Every step is one step closer to this providential moment of significance. We know that. We see that. We know the end of, of this story. But we, but, but we don't get the privilege of knowing all the details of our story as it's happening in real time. So how do we, how do, we do that? Well, we look at these stories and go, if God had a point, if God had a purpose, if God was providentially sovereign over all of those circumstances, and he's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, then he must be over 
all of my situations and circumstances too. And so we come to our present circumstances with the eyes of faith. And like Joseph, we know how our story ends. We know that nothing ultimately separates us from God. We know that ultimately sin and death are defeated. We know that suffering and trials don't have the last word. We know that that injustice will not ultimately go unchecked. See, in the Bible, when it looks like sin will ruin all, when it looks like suffering will have the final say, the Lord moves. See, Joseph is really a glimpse into God's ultimate redemptive plan. See, just like Joseph was accused of this accusation, Jesus, the truer and greater Joseph, was truly innocent of all accusations. And really, he was the only truly innocent sufferer. Just like Joseph, Jesus was punished for a crime he did not commit, so too Jesus was punished for crimes that he did not commit. And just like Joseph secured the future preservation of his family and future Israel, so too did the suffering of Jesus eternally secure the future preservation of all God's people. See, the story of Joseph and ultimately the story of Jesus are teaching us a huge theological truth. Don't evaluate the situation of your circumstances as evidence that your suffering will end in pointless, meaningless tragedy. Rather, with the eyes of faith, see that your suffering will, at the proper time, according to God's plan, result in your exaltation. Friends, God loves you, and he does have a wonderful plan for your life. But it's a plan that goes beyond the surface level of comfort and ease. It's a plan where God is committed to your growth, and he's committed to your maturity. It's a plan that includes your death and your resurrection. And it does include suffering, but never suffering alone. Not meaningless suffering and not suffering that's outside of God's will. As you suffer, God will be with you. He will be for you. And he will ultimately go ahead of you so that your suffering ultimately results in his glory and our good. Let's pray.